0: I've been blessed by uh, your, your teaching pastor's uh, ministry, Rick Holland. In fact, he was my preaching professor, so if I do anything bad today, you can blame him when he gets back. In fact, I can't escape the, 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 the sense that I might be kind of still in preaching lab and a little bit on trial, you know, since he was always there um, watching over me in my days of seminary. But the Lord used uh, him, and um, I'm so grateful for the time that I had there learning so much about preaching. I mean, I, I knew virtually nothing when I showed up to seminary. I remember back in the early days when I was teaching at a, a large church uh, back in the Atlanta area, I was asked to teach the college Bible study. And uh, my wife remembers these days. I mean, I, I would just take my Bible and I would find a passage that I thought was had some sort of significance, and I would open it up and lay it on the sofa in front of me, and I would read over it, and then I would bow my head and I would pray, oh Lord, you know, just what does this mean? You know, what is it, what, what am I supposed to bring to these people? And I'd open up my eyes and I would read it again and really think about it. And I'd close again. I would read and pray and ask the Lord to teach me what it meant. And I mean, that would go on all night, Saturday night, just trying to, I was so stressed out because I had no idea uh, of what it meant to handle the Word of God. I had no concept of, of uh, exegesis and, and hermeneutics or any of those things. I mean, I had been brought up in essentially a charismatic uh, environment. I came to know Christ in a charismatic church, and uh, my early days were steeped in mysticism. Uh, I was taught that, you know, serious study is actually antithetical to the Holy Spirit. You would quench the Holy Spirit if you got too deep into any kind of theology. And so, I was, just, I was just taught to go to the Word of God and Psalm, you know, 119, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things from your law. And that's kind of the way I viewed understanding Scripture. That's the way I approached even preparation for Sunday school lessons and, and preaching and, and things like that. And, and as I did that over and over again, and things honestly got, you can ask my students, you know, things didn't get very clear by Sunday morning. Uh, I was wondering, what is going on? I mean, am I not praying hard enough? There's not enough sweat dripping from my forehead? What's going on? Why, why am I not understanding this word? I mean, I really thought that this was the way that you're supposed to approach the, the study of Scripture. But what I came to understand, what I needed to understand, was uh, really a clear doctrine of illumination. I needed to understand how, what is the process that, that, that goes on in the mind and the heart of a believer as he approaches the Word of God in order to bring about clarity in your understanding? The Word of God, we're told, and I think uh, rightly so, is perspicuous. That's a big word in theological terms for clear. The Word of God is clear. You'll be hearing about that, I'm sure, in the coming weeks. Uh, If there is some issue, some lack or gap of understanding between the Scripture and you, the deficiency is not on the part of Scripture. Scripture is clear. God, in other words, is a good communicator. God doesn't have deficiencies in His communication skills. When He sets out to say something, He says it truly, rightly, and clearly. And so we have given to us this Word of God, and it is clear, but we need illumination. And illumination technically is not something that is about the Scripture. This is, I know, the summer preaching series on the Word of God, and I've been tasked with this uh, job of talking about illumination. But illumination is not really a doctrine about the Scripture. It's really a doctrine about your heart and my heart is a doctrine about the Holy Spirit and what needs to take place inside of each of us. So we want to understand today and take a look at this doctrine of illumination. What does the Scripture teach us about our understanding of it? And uh, to, to do that, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 one of the key passages in all of Scripture on this issue of illumination. And I want to just highlight right at the start a couple of key verses that are going to be the center of our attention today in verses 14 through 16 of First Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, "...the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him." And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who's understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. These are Paul's words to a church in the first century that was struggling to understand the world around them and why the world was perhaps not so enamored with the message of the gospel that they had received. They had heard the gospel. They had been converted. Paul affirms in the opening verses of this book that they are saints, they are believers. But this was a church that had quickly become consumed, terribly concerned with how they were perceived by the world around them. They were concerned about whether or not they were considered by the outside world as intellectual, as sophisticated, as refined, as cultured, as whatever whatever it might be. They wanted to be considered wise by the watching world around them. And you have to understand uh, that this is, the the city of Corinth itself is a city that was right in the middle of Greece and in the middle of Greek culture, which was enamored, as you may know, with the great philosophers. This is right in the middle of the great age of, of philosophy in Greece, in ancient Greece. And so, what you had is you had these different schools of philosophy that were all around, and even in the city, there were wealthy patrons who would sort of advance or sort of cement their place in society and culture by inviting in a well-known philosopher and hosting them and, and having lectures in their homes and sort of throwing dinner parties where people would come and listen to the, the opining of these, of these uh, philosophical teachers. And so there was a tremendous pressure for people within society to appear sophisticated in this way. These were their models. These were the ideals that were set before them. They wanted to be respected. They wanted to be, uh, to, to be uh, applauded for their erudition, for their, as I said, their sophistication. And they had become enamored with that, to be honest. They wanted to be recognized by the world as sophisticated. But they were particularly disturbed by the fact that the world around them had become so antithetical to the message they had heard from the Apostle Paul. They had become so opposed to this gospel they regarded it with contempt. It was mocked. It was denigrated, as unrefined, as maybe even irrational. And this was coming not only from the outside world, but there were even people, as we eventually learned in 2 Corinthians, there were even people who seeped into the church, who were attacking the Apostle Paul and, and calling, him, uh, calling his speech contemptible, his personal presence weak some ways it's no different than today you have some people pastors leaders of mega who are so concerned over what they perceive to be the ridicule of atheistic voices or humanistic uh, systems around them that reject the christian scriptures and their solution they say they're 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 answer to the problem is that you and I need to unhinge ourselves from the Scripture. We need to unhitch ourselves from the Scripture because the Word of God is mocked by the world around us. In order to attract the world or make ourselves irresistible, what we need to do is unhitch ourselves from all that is perceived by the world to be um, unacceptable or, or uh, is open to the mockery of the world, what we need to do is try to minimize and diminish or set aside those parts of the Word of God that would be particularly a stumbling block to the world or particularly mocked by the world. You and I need to unhinge ourselves from the Word. Paul had a very different approach though. And he's explaining it to them in the opening chapters of this book. This church that was so um, distraught over the way the world was receiving the message of God. And he begins by sort of setting a proper expectation when it comes to how people, how Paul would expect people to respond to the Word of God. He says in the opening chapter, in verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, the Word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to them. Those people who are perishing, essentially those people who are unsaved, those people who are unregenerate, when the Word of God is presented, they they receive it or they hear it or they respond to it as if it's foolishness. And it wasn't a problem of the presentation. It wasn't a problem of the delivery. The problem, Paul is saying, is the message itself. The message itself is looked upon as foolish. He understood that when he presented the message of the cross, when you present a faithful gospel message in public society, it is going to be ridiculed. It's going to be ridiculed. Because the world sees the message of God as foolish. And so, in chapter 2, Paul says in the opening verse, "'So when I came to you, brothers, "'I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God "'with lofty speech or wisdom. "'For I decided to know nothing among you "'except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. "'And I was with you in weakness and in fear "'and much trembling, and my speech and my message "'were not in plausible words of wisdom.' but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, I often reference that and I remind people or I I point out to them what Paul's saying here, what he's not saying. What he's not saying is I I came to you and I just told you the simple message of Jesus Christ's crucifixion over and over and over again. I I didn't limit myself to what, you know, we sometimes call the old, old story. Paul's preaching was not that simplistic. I mean, it doesn't take much just reading his writings to understand, as the Apostle Peter says, that there were some things in Paul's writing which were difficult to understand. In other words, it had a sophistication to it, there was a depth. To his teaching, Paul is not saying that he dumbed down his message and made it so simplistic, but what he 's saying is that when I preached, I limited myself to the, the the gospel and its implications. My message was not plausible in the sense of worldly wisdom i wasn 't searching for something that would be applauded by the world, but I I preached a message which was grounded upon, rooted in, and, and within the boundaries of the message of the cross. I didn't conform my message to meet the standards of what was considered lofty speech or sophistication by the world. And he did all that knowing how people would respond, knowing that it would be looked at as foolish. But his solution was not to therefore set aside those portions of the Word which were offensive or uncomfortable or mocked. His, his solution wasn't to get rid of whatever elements of God's message would be incompatible with the world. And what he begins to do in chapter 2 is to really take us deeply into an understanding of why that is. In fact, he goes in in verse 6, you'll notice, Paul begins to explain that although this message was rejected by the world as foolish, it's not foolish at all. In fact, Paul says, we do impart wisdom among the mature although it's not a wisdom, he says, of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Paul says, look, I, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I, I'm not, I don't put a premium on ignorance. I, I'm not uh, one of those preachers who would stand before you and, and tell you how ridiculous it is for you to pursue depth and richness and wisdom. I do preach wisdom, But it's a wisdom, he says, that the rulers of this age do not comprehend, but the mature do. The reason that the world doesn't reject, oh, excuse me, doesn't accept this, the reason that they reject it is because ultimately it doesn't jive with their value system in their temporal and passing world. They're driven by this passing world and all all of its values. But Paul says we're imparting a wisdom that while it's not recognized by that group, it is recognized by those who are mature. In fact, this knowledge, Paul says, is essentially inaccessible to the world by any of its normal, natural means. He says, but as it's written in verse 9, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined… What God has prepared for those who love Him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So he's essentially saying, "Look, you know, uh, uh, this wisdom that we're preaching isn't anything that the world would ever come to know on its own." And he sort of covers the gamut of all of the avenues of discovery from the world. He he talks about, for example, what the eye has seen, which is what empirical knowledge. He says, nothing that the eye has seen, nothing that the world could ever learn by its empirical knowledge, nor ear has heard, which is, we might say, traditional knowledge or historical knowledge. It's nothing that would have ever been passed down to them through all of their traditions. Or even, he says, nor entered into the heart of man, man's imagination. In other words, philosophical knowledge. Whatever we're preaching to you has zero source in mankind. It is so antithetical to man, it couldn't even arise out of him. He doesn't have the capability of, of, of producing any of this knowledge. It is, we would say then, essentially, supernatural. Supernatural. It's supernatural knowledge. It is so different from anything else that we might call natural knowledge. And what Paul essentially does, and I I confess, it's a temptation. I would want to just go through every part of this, but that's not my job today. What he essentially does is walks us through, beginning in verse 10, the doctrine of revelation how God revealed these things, and then the doctrine of inspiration, how those things which are revealed were then put into words by human authors. He says in verse 12, we received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God, and we impart part." This in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, just take note of that word spiritual because it becomes the key word throughout the entire context. Spiritual, spiritual, spiritual. And what Paul is essentially explaining to them the reason why the world around them is not accepting what they're preaching and what, accepting what they've heard, the reason why the world might be mocking their message isn't because of some deficiency in the Word of God. It is because of the nature of Scripture. It is spiritual. We took spiritual truths... And we delivered them to those who are spiritual. Some translations take, uh, you know, putting spiritual truths in spiritual words, but you could basically come up with the same idea. This is talking about the special nature of Scripture. And what Paul is explaining to them is that we have received these spiritual words, words that came not from any human source, but came from the Spirit of God. They revealed the mind of God, the infinite mind of God. And because they are spiritual words, only spiritual people receive them. This really brings us to verse 14 and Paul's explanation, you might say, of this whole idea of illumination, the reality that because of the spiritual nature of Scripture, the Word is uniquely understood by spiritual people. And to explain that, Paul essentially will present to us three groups of people at the end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3, three groups of people, and he'll say two things about each one of these groups that help us to understand the, 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 the process, if you will, of illumination. The first one that he introduces to us in verse 14 is the unspiritual person, the unspiritual person, or we might say the natural person. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He begins with this, this, this natural person, the person who is, has not received the Spirit of God. He hasn't been touched by the Spirit of God. He is, we would say, an unbeliever. He's unconverted, unregenerate, however you want to say it. But whatever it is, he doesn't have the Spirit of God. God's Spirit is not resident within him. All he has are the resources of his own mind, his own natural soul. And so he lives by a purely natural set of values, natural impulses, untouched by the Spirit of God, still controlled by the natural self. And so this person, Paul tells us two things about him. First of all, that he does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Because he judges them foolish. basically what he's saying back in chapter 1, verse 18, right? The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Here he's just returning to the same subject. He's saying, look, the natural man doesn't receive spiritual words, because he judges them to be foolish. Well, why is that? Why does the natural person judge these things to be foolish? I mean, why is it that an unbeliever can read the same words, the same language, Maybe even understand some historical details. Why is it that the natural person can read the same Scripture that you and I have and yet walk away from it and it have no impact on them, make no change in their life, where you hear it and you think, wow, that is the power of God. And they hear it and they think, that is utter foolishness. Well, the bottom line is because the natural person is still the source of their own authority. I mean, that's it. They are still the source of their own authority. They, they view themselves ultimately as the final arbiter of truth. They may have all kinds of ration, uh, rational arguments and reasons and all those other things, but at the end of the day, they're their own source of truth. Things are right because they judge them to be right. He has no need in his own mind for anything outside of Scripture to step in and reveal truth to him. He's not looking for anyone to reveal truth to him. The Scripture says in Proverbs, the fool is right in his own eyes. In fact, I, I've actually met people who believe they they've told me that they could teach God a few lessons. That if God would actually listen to them, they could get a few things straight with Him. That they they could actually go in and edit and, and make the Word of God better. They're wise in their own eyes, in their own opinion, in their own judgment. That's ultimately the issue. Now, Paul is not denying the resourcefulness of of the unbeliever. He's not denying the value of of what their insights might be in their own world and their own venue. Uh, They show incredible ingenuity, creativity uh, in building highways and buildings and managing money and uh, studying uh, anatomy or physics or logic or finance or even art. I mean, Jesus himself said that the sons of this age are sometimes wiser than the sons of eternity, right? Many times in practical knowledge, the natural man will excel above believers. He will show in practical wisdom, wisdom way beyond even believers. Even sometimes in religious matters, unbelievers will show a remarkable uh, uh, breadth of knowledge. There are people who denounce Christ and yet teach in theological schools around the world who we would pick up their writings and read something about historical data from the first century or some issue with even sometimes observations in Scripture, and they they bring certain data points which are insightful. Some unbelievers have known and studied the Bible more intensely than even you have. There are many agnostics and atheists who who could articulate with crystal clarity things, doctrines, such as the deity of Christ and the virgin birth and substitutionary atonement and the resurrection and return of Christ. They, they, They teach these things, sometimes in religion departments of colleges across our nation. But at the end of the day, After understanding all of it, they ultimately scoff at it as foolish. And the issue, the problem, is not with the information in the text. The issue is not with the grammar and the history and the context. That's not where the breakdown happens. There's nothing, in other words, there's no deficiency with the Word of God. It is clear. God is a good communicator. Problem is in their own hearts and minds because the scripture tells us they're depraved. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look with me over at Romans chapter 8 for just a moment because Paul articulates this over there as well. He says in verse, in uh, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Here, what he's talking about is not information. When he says that the unbeliever cannot understand or, in this case, submit himself to the law of God, the, ifr- the problem is not information. The problem is attitude. The problem is, is the, the orientation of his heart. He is, whether he wants to admit it or not, whether he's religious or not, whether he's devout in some local assembly, church, synagogue, temple, whatever it might be, whatever his religious orientation is, none of that really matters. What matters is whether or not the Spirit of God has touched his heart and broken his hostility towards God in his unregenerate state and given him a mind of the Spirit so that he can receive spiritual truth. He doesn't have a problem comprehending what is said necessarily, maybe sometimes. What he has a problem with is accepting. It's like the dilemma Paul explains over in Romans chapter 1, where you have an unbeliever who he says is in this awkward position of being a believing unbeliever. Paul says it. He says that the things which uh, can be known about God, he says, are understood by the unbelieving world. And yet they take the truth, and what do they do with it? Suppress it in unrighteousness. John Calvin described it like a a traveler on a pitch black night with no moon when suddenly there comes a momentary flash of lightning. And for a moment, the world around him is lit up and he sees it as it is. And yet, after the flash is over, he goes right back to his darkness. He suppresses that truth and leads on in his life groping in the darkness. Paul says in another place Ephesians chapter 4 that the unbelieving mind is darkened. In fact, I'll read that for us beginning in verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says the unbelieving mind uh, that, uh, that 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 you and I should no longer walk in is futile. This I say and testify in the Lord, that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. So the unbelievers, the unspiritual person, the person who hasn't been regenerate, they're interacting with the truth of God, but they are not receiving, not accepting the truth because of their spiritual condition. One more place I want you to look at is in Luke chapter 11. Luke 11, when Jesus gives a similar kind of a warning, he says in verse 34 of Luke 11, he says, Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. When it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. That last phrase, what Jesus is saying, He's comparing, if you will, our understanding, our heart, you might say, to the eye. And He uses this metaphor to explain why so many do not receive the light of the truth, particularly why they didn't receive His teaching. And if people he says do not receive his light the illumination if you will of the word of God it's not because the light was hidden there might be the noonday sun on the outside the problem is not with the light the problem is with the apparatus the instrument through which they're trying to receive it in this case he's using the metaphor of the eye but really what he's really talking about is the heart be careful if your heart is dark. Listen, there might be some of you here today, you've, you've sat and listened to sermons, you've listened to this sermon. And you've already rolled your eyes in the back of your head and you're counting your minutes until you can get out of here because you, could, and you sit and you listen to preaching all the time, and for you, it is useless. It is foolish. Listen, the the, the warning from Jesus Christ is this. That you need to be careful. Lest the very light that you think that you have inside of you, your own judgment, your own opinions, the very thing that, that is guiding your life, you need to be careful. Lest the very light in you is actually darkness. You have a darkened heart. If you don't understand the scripture, if you're not receiving the scripture, if you don't comprehend the gospel. You don't comprehend what all this is about. You have a darkened heart that needs to be touched by the Spirit of God so that He can open your eyes to see the truth of His Word. Jesus says, listen, if the light in you is darkness, He goes on and say in the next verse, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If your eye is blinded, then basically your whole world is dark. If your heart is darkened because of your sin, then your whole world is dark, no matter how enlightened you might think you are. You need the touch of God's Spirit. You go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is continuing to tell us about this natural person. And he told us already that he doesn't, that, that, that he thinks the Word of God is foolish. And then secondly, because of that, because he he judges the Word and the message of God to be foolish, he therefore is not able to understand the truths from God because they're spiritually discerned. Again, he's not talking about cognitive understanding. He's talking about the embrace. They're spiritually discerned, or the New American Standard says they're spiritually appraised. We might say they're spiritually valued. The problem is is not a lack of information. It is a lack of ability, a lack of spiritual capacity, a lack of proper spiritual value. Again, John Calvin once said, faced with God's revelation, the unbeliever is like a mule at a concert. You have all this beautiful music, And like a mule, you have no capacity to understand what you're hearing because the Spirit of God hasn't touched you. You can't appreciate the grandeur. You can't appreciate the beauty. You can't appreciate the light. You can't appreciate the truth. Well, in contrast to all of this, Paul takes us from that sort of natural person then to a second person to what he calls not the unspiritual person, but the spiritual person which he introduces to us in verse 15 when he says the spiritual person sees the value of all things or he judges all things. This is the first thing he tells us about the spiritual person. The spiritual man guided by the Holy Spirit lives under the influence of the Spirit. The Spirit's dwelling within him. And so the Holy Spirit, when he interacts or with spiritual words, the Holy Spirit has granted him the capacity now to see the value in what he's reading or hearing or or, or, or interacting with. He evaluates it. He weighs it carefully. And the wisdom that is there, the authority that is there becomes evident to him. He no longer is living his life making subjective judgments. But now he makes judgments based on what is dispensed to him, what is given to him by the Word of God. Again, we didn't, we didn't take time to cover all this in verses 10 through, through uh, what, 13. But Paul has told us that the Spirit searches the mind of God. Now, you understand how expansive the mind of God is, right? Infinitely expansive. Meaning that spiritual words given to us in the Scripture come from the only source in the universe who knows everything. Every contingency, every qualification, every deception, everything. And so when he dispenses these words coming from this this infinite mind, what he dispenses is always true. It's considered every factor and communicated it perfectly. And this is what we have received, and when we have the Spirit of God, we recognize it for what it is. It is spiritual truth, and we respond to it the right way. And as a result of that, Paul says the spiritual person judges, appraises, values all things. Now, now, don't read that and assume that what Paul's saying is that somehow you suddenly become omniscient. Or you suddenly become infinite in your understanding. I know your husband may tell you that sometimes, but he's not. We all have limitations. But what Paul is saying is, because of your access to the mind of God through the Word of God, you have now the instrument and the capacity to properly understand everything. As Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, God has given us all things we need for life and for godliness. Pretty much covers it. I mean, last time I checked, life, yeah, I got that covered, and godliness. All things we need for life and godliness through the promises that have been given to us. So, Paul is telling us that because of this spiritual capacity that's been given to us, and we now have the ability to interact with spiritual truth and understand it, value it, appraise it, and so we have access to the mind of God, which is the second thing he really tells us in, in this uh, verse is that this, this spiritual person, while he, while he appraises and while he properly values and properly assesses and properly discerns all things because he has access to the Spirit of God, the things of the Spirit of God. He himself is not properly judged. He's not properly assessed by anyone. In other words, the outside world, the, judge, uh, the, uh, the, the unbelieving world, the natural world, they will look at you as a church, as a group of Christians. They will mock. They will ridicule. They will say, look, your, your God is petulant. He is a genocidal maniac. You know, he called for the slaughter of nations. They'll say all these ridiculous things about your God. And Paul says, what do I care the outsider does not properly assess me or the Word of God. He doesn't have the capacity to. Why would I listen to him? Why would I care what he says? He doesn't judge the Word of God. He doesn't assess the believer because he doesn't have the ability. You know, he's writing to a church that was consumed with the way that the unbelieving, outside, philosophical, erudite, sophisticated world was talking about the church. They were consumed with that. Paul says it doesn't matter. We're not judged by anyone. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? What a great verse. He quotes from... From uh, Isaiah chapter 40, there. Almost sort of sarcastically. Oh, oh, you're going to instruct God? Oh, you, you didn't think that God properly handled that situation. You didn't like that law that God made or whatever it is. You are going to correct God? Who instructs God? But we have the mind. Of Christ, You know, what I think he's talking about there, he's not, he's not saying that you and I have suddenly sort of had a, a brain transplant and, and suddenly we have this now divine organ in our cranium. He's not saying that we literally have the omniscience of, of God in our head. What he's saying is That through the spiritual truths that have been revealed by the apostles, through those truths in the Word of God, you and I have the infinite wisdom of God available to us in the Word of God, the mind of Christ, the secret things of God that no man knows except the Spirit of God within him, the Spirit has made them known. And so, we have here this enormous capacity for understanding, for discernment, for wisdom because God has given to us His Spirit. Because when we think according to His Spirit, we think, as the the old theologians would say, we think God's thoughts after Him, then our minds and hearts are opened up to all kinds of things through the Word of God. That's illumination. But it doesn't end there because Paul has to introduce us or he has to turn and address, I should say, a final group of people here at Corinth. And that is, beginning in chapter 3, the spiritually immature. The spiritually immature. Again, the key link to this entire passage is the word spiritual. And you can see that Paul picks it up again here in verse one, "But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people." What a sad, sad statement. I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as what? infants in Christ, immature. I fed you with milk, not with solid food. for you were not ready for it. Even now you're not ready. And why? Why were you not ready? For you're still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in a human way? So, Paul is really transitioning here to explain now to them, explaining to this church. So, he's laid out the paradigm. He's, he's helped us to understand why the watching world would look at our Word of God, our Scripture, and reject parts of it or all of it or whatever. And then he's explained to us why you and I can understand it because we're spiritual people when we receive the Spirit of God, and now we have the capacity to access all of it But then he comes and tells us that the issue with the Corinthians and the issue with so many people is that they're not acting like spiritual people. They're not behaving like spiritual people. They're behaving, they're thinking like people of the flesh. And so what he tells us here, again, two things about these people. The first is is their, we might say, limit in their diets. Their are dietary limits when it comes to the Word of God. He, I, couldn't, I couldn't feed you with solid food. I had to give you milk. And when I came and I preached to you, you didn't always recognize the value of what I was giving to you. When you opened up the Word and read it, you didn't always appreciate what you saw there. But the problem wasn't with the Word of God. The problem wasn't with some portions of the Word that somehow need to be detached from the church or from your Christian view. The problem is with you, your immaturity. This was a sad state of the church in Corinth. They were spiritual infants. They were spiritually childish. They were undeveloped. I mean, we all love a baby, right? No one enjoys Uh, anything more than the the cuteness of a a little baby and their gurgles, you know, and they're kind of floppy and all that stuff and and they can slobber and spit all over you and you just laugh and smile and, you know, you smell like them for the next day but it doesn't matter, you know, because they're so sweet. That's adorable. But when you meet an adult who does the same thing, it's weird. (laughs) I mean, like, you're like, this isn't good. Paul's saying, you're like a bunch of adult infants. You're like a church full of adult infants. And I had to feed you milk because that's all you can handle. And the reason that you could only handle that was because of your state of mind. You are enamored with the thinking of the world. You are enamored with the ways of the world. You are enamored with the flesh, with the thinking of men. In fact, Paul will go on in chapter 4 to sort of ridicule these people and their, their view of themselves. He says in verse 10 of First Corinthians 4, he said, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you, you're wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. So, in other words, this isn't the view of themselves that they had, but this was the actual view. Spiritually immature. They were immature. Their diet was limited because of what is essentially the second thing Paul tells them about them is their minds were trained to the flesh. Their values, their goals, their standards, their pursuits. They filled their mind with worldly values. They wanted to be recognized, they wanted to be respected, they wanted to be applauded, they wanted to be loved, they wanted all those things. And so the Word of God suddenly appeared to them, if not foolish, useless, mundane, tiresome, confusing. See, this is the real issue when we come to the Word of God. It's not that the Word of God has any issues. It's clear. The problem is with you and I, our biases, our prejudices, our deficiencies, our miscalculations, or whatever it might be. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says in the opening verse of that chapter, putting aside all malice deceit hypocrisy envy and slander like newborn infants long for the pure milk of the word that you might grow in salvation don't confuse metaphors there Paul's not telling them in the same way he is uh, Peter's not telling them the same way that Paul is in Corinthians that, that somehow they need to feed on spiritual milk he's using the metaphor of the insatiable appetite that a newborn baby has And he's tweaking them for having lost that appetite for the Word of God somewhere along the way in their life. And he says that the reason is what? Malice, envy, deceit, hypocrisy. See, when you and I come to the Word of God, we need to be illumined. We need to understand it. But when we're praying to God, open our eyes that we might understand wonderful things from your law. We're not asking for God to sort of give us some sort of decoder ring where magically words appear in the white spaces in between and we figure it all out. What you're asking for is for God to make known to you what are the sinful biases? What What are the humanistic traditions What are the fleshly ways of thinking that have taken root in your heart and have made you unwilling to listen to the Word of God? Some of you have done that. You have gotten so worked up, so consumed with your own place, your own position, your own applause, your own recognition. And it may not even be in the world, it might be even within the church. You've all been out of shape with somebody and, and life now becomes oriented around what you can do to get them back or what you can do to even avoid them. And so subtly, without you knowing about it, your appetite for the Word of God has cratered. You're, you're running on the, uh, the borrowed capital from past times when you used to be a student of the Word. And now all you are is consumed with yourself. The Word of God isn't alive to you anymore. You need to repent. You need to confess. You need to ask the Lord to illumine your heart to understand His truth. You come to it as a student. You come to it as a, sometimes a, a, a professor, whoever it might be, a writer. You come to the Word of God. It doesn't matter what your purpose is. You need the Holy Spirit removing the barriers of your own biases, of your own prejudgments, of your own sin, of whatever it might be, so that the clear Word of God can minister to your soul. I hope the Lord will use this preaching series, and not only this week, in the coming weeks, to reinvigorate your love for the Word of God, your appreciation for what it is. And I hope along the way that He'll use uh, this series to help you even search your own heart, to get everything out of the way so that the Word of God in His beautiful, magnificent position can be what it's meant to be in your life again.